You're listening to Brick to the Future, the property investment show for everyday Australians. We cut through the white noise so you can minimise risk and make smart, informed investment decisions. If you're after tips and strategies while building a property portfolio that suits your lifestyle, you're in the right place. Property investing, is it risky or safe? Matt and I unpack what are the risks of investing in property? What are the effective ways that you can mitigate those risks and protect yourself? And stick around to the end because we're going to cover off what is the biggest risk of investing in property. That one's critical because it can probably change your financial future. OpenCorp Group CEO Matt Lewison is in the house down from Queensland joining us here today to discuss is property a high risk investment or how risky is investing in property. Risk is something that we hear a lot about. Uh, so we thought, why not get someone who's got 25 years investing experience to unpack it with us? Matt, great to see you as always. Thanks, Boz. Looking forward to the conversation. Unreal. So risk. Um, we talk to a lot of investors and have done so for many years. And uh, one of the things that often holds them back is, oh, I think property is risky. Um, what's your take on that? And what's, I guess, your definition of risk? That's uh, a really good question. So. First of all, I think anybody who believes there's no risk in property is BSing themselves and you perhaps, because um, there's absolutely risk in property. There's risk in almost anything. There's risk in putting your money in bank, um, as we've seen over in the US uh, from time to time. So there's always going to be risk. It's a matter of what risk you take on, how you can mitigate those risks and being smart to minimize the risk. And I guess what we're all after is the maximum return for the minimum risk. and. Um, there's an old adage that the higher the risk, the higher the return. And absolutely, if you've got taken on a high risk, you want a high return. That's not to say that you can't get a high return with a low risk investment. Uh, and I think residential property or certain types of residential property absolutely fit that bill. Yeah, I think that's um, definitely for me. When I was starting out 20 years ago, I thought, well, you know, w- what is the risk here? And we know Cam's got a favourite saying that, you know, um, time fixes everything, including bad haircuts. You know, I, I had plenty of time, uh, so it was around, well, for me, what was the risk of not doing something? But if we just pick up on your first point there, um, uh, no investment is risk-free, as you said. What are the, the, the risks for people to be aware of when it comes to investing in property? All right, well, there's, there's obviously direct risk. So if you, you invest in a, in a residential property, there's a direct risk from the building itself, um, whether it's defects, if it's new, whether it's maintenance issues, whether it's latent risks that might be unseen. Um, it could be the way that the building was built, could be the materials that we use. There's all sorts of things. could be underground, like tree roots can create yep. risk. Pipes can create risk. Um, so there's a lot of physical risks associated with property and then there's financial risks associated directly with that property as well. Can you get a tenant? Does the tenant cover the, the rent? And then there's probably the more in, indirect risks. And these indirect risks aren't necessarily related directly to your property. Those risks might be the broader economy, the lending landscape, could yep. be your own personal financial circumstances. What if you lose your job? What if something happens? What if you, um, for people who maybe own their own business or in, in risky roles, what if you get sued? Does that gonna affect the, the assets that you have? Um, yeah, that's a whole heap of different things that are, I guess, external to the property itself. But then again, those same risks can probably apply to almost any investment. Right. Um, so, uh, so it's about mitigating, as I've said a, a few times, about 
managing those risks and mitigating them so they have the least amount of impact or the least potential to impact your investment as well. It's really interesting. So um, I agree with all those things that you've said and we can un unpack kind of how... <laughs> Clearly not a surprise. Um, uh, we can kind of unpack how, uh, how we go about mitigating those. One of the things that we hear really often from people though is, oh, I think property is risky because you know, it's a, it's a large amount or you know, I'm, I'm paying a lot in stamp duty to acquire it, so it feels risky. Um, have you got any kind of comments on, um, on that and just because something's expensive doesn't make it naturally risky, I guess? Yeah, um, I think so. In terms of like the size of the investment, certainly the bigger the investment gets, in terms of the more you're investing, uh, I guess the riskier the perception. It, it mm. makes complete sense. There's actually um, there's a lot of um, there's a economist who I can't remember. I think it was from Freakonomics years ago. Right. Did did that analysis and on. Um, how people, why people are afraid of certain things. And obviously post 9-11, a lot of people got scared of flying in planes. And as a result, the more people were on the roads, the, the death toll went up. Right. Uh, obviously we have this fear of a plane falling out of the sky, but that happens so rarely. Um, but you know, you can visualize it and it's really, really scary as opposed to crashing a car mm. um, where we think we're, we've got a little bit more control. So people perhaps, I can understand why people would think that because they're investing half a million or a million dollars in an asset, that it might make it more risky than investing $50,000 in an asset. But if you put $50,000 in crypto and you can lose half of it overnight, um, it's a lot less than what you've put into property, but property doesn't have that same volatility. Um, same with shares. Shares go through these ups and downs. And again, people, some people think, well, it's in a share market. I can liquidate any day that I want. Um, but when the market goes down, it can go down 10, 20% overnight. And the worst thing you can do at times is try to take the money out. So there's this perception of, uh, I guess, lack of control sometimes in mm. larger assets or illiquid assets, and also in the quantum that they're, they're taking on maybe a bigger risk. But the reality is, again, um, it's a very stable asset. It's actually, when you look over the last 50 years, and there's a lot of research on this, and it's like it's just undeniable that the residential housing market has lower volatility than the share market, than crypto, than commercial property, yep. than, than listed or unlisted property funds, um, even than superannuation, uh, which goes up and down. Residential property has had very few years of negative growth over the last 50 years. And on average, when it's going up, it's going up by five plus percent, um, which, Again, if, you, if you're just using the general rules of investment would make it a lower risk um, investment than most of the other classes of assets. Yeah, and I think the, the one thing I'd add to that is um, with, with some of the other investment classes where um, investors are um, investing smaller amounts like crypto or shares, uh, the size of the prize tends to kind of override any risk assessments. I was like, Oh, I, I could double my 20 grand overnight. Like that, that seems pretty exciting. Yeah. It becomes an adrenaline-based emotional decision. Uh, but when we're talking about say 700,000 in a property, uh, naturally the thought goes to, oh, well, what if I go backwards? Yeah. So um, we're obviously not, or very few people are investing 700,000 in a property. We're maybe putting down 160, 170K. 
um, at a maximum and borrowing the rest. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that that kind of mindset that people bring to it. So you talked before around uh, direct, indirect and latent risks. Um, if we talk about taking each of those one by one, what are some um, effective ways, I guess, especially around the latent risks that people can um, mitigate their risk and, and make sure that you know, their, their cash flow is going to be stable and they haven't got any nasty surprises? Yeah, I mean, obviously, when you um, when you compare residential property, and obviously there's different types of residential property, so I think that's something else that probably warrants discussion too. Yep. Um, we've seen with apartments uh, recently, there was the, the Opal building um, issues over in Sydney where a building, even though it's you kind of think of it's a big bit of concrete, like what could go wrong, and it had major cracking coming through it. Yeah. Um, and tenants had to be moved out, people's assets went down, nobody really wants to buy those apartments anymore. Um, that was a latent risk. Somebody could have bought an apartment the day before that happened, they had no idea it was gonna happen, and bang, there's obviously their assets has dropped in value. Yeah. Um, so again, when we think about how we manage risk, I mean, one of them is selection of the property type. Yeah. Um, and we obviously like house and land as our priority. Um, we love new new houses in particular because we're not taking some historical um, building and all of its latent risks. So if we're building new and we know what the building standards are and they keep getting higher and higher and higher, uh, then we know that the building is going to be built to a standard that should with, withstand the test of time. But we're also picking up a six and a half year builder's warranty period that if there's anything that doesn't quite work out structurally, it gets fixed and it's not on us. And if we eventually go to sell that house, then obviously we're not taking any impacts from from defects. Are we going to get the full value of the home? I think that's kind of an important one to manage. Yeah, I'm sorry to just cut you off, but I, I remember you know early on in my career of helping investors, so we're talking well over a decade ago here, um, I had a conversation with a guy, George, and um, uh, I was living in, in Bentley in the time, which is a like a semi-blue chip suburb of, of Melbourne. And, uh, and George just couldn't get past his emotional bent to, uh, to be investing where he lived. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, just, it's the best example I've, I've got of that. I've never forgotten it. He, uh, he bought a property for 685,000. Uh, within the first 12 months of having it, it needed restumping. He didn't have the extra 35K buffer required to be able to cover that. Uh, tenants moved out when the lease ended as a result. Um, he wasn't able to service the mortgage without the rent. Um, ended up selling it for 615 basically at, at fire sales. So, um, you know, not a, not a great situation for him by any stretch, but a really good, I guess, example of, um, you know, stretch out, the prolong the risk for as long as possible. Because if your biggest issue is you've created equity and you need to tap into a bit of that to handle some maintenance, for example, um, you know, then that plus your cash flow buffers can, can serve you pretty well. Spot on. I mean, I've had a property that um, we had it for 20 years and there was a leak, uh, it turned out, like see one of the pipes just kind of got loose at a joint, leaked behind the shower, kind of whole bathroom needed to be redone. And it was about $20,000 worth of work. Insurance mm. covered maybe three quarters of it. We lost some rent as well. We're probably seven grand out of pocket, but again, we'd owned it for 20 years. If we sold it a month before that happened and we didn't know it was going to happen, well, some poor investor might have inherited that big problem and it would have been a huge issue for them mm. as a brand new property investor um, as opposed to somebody who's owned it for 20 years. And if we amortise that over the life of the property, it's like 500 bucks a year that it cost us 
um, which isn't a lot. But uh, again, it's it's managing those risks. Yeah. Um, now you also just in terms of managing those property related risks, those direct risks, making sure you don't have trees around a house, like kind of tree roots can get in under a home, can completely ruin the, the footings. Uh, if you are buying an established house to like, get a, a reputable company to come and do a building inspection yep. uh, and make sure that you do it before you're unconditional, um, before you put an offer in ideally, but otherwise get a condition that enables you to get that building inspection and make sure you understand what are the costs to rectify those those things and if you can pass those risks back to the vendor. Um, so there, I guess, a couple of them, but there's also tenancy risks directly related to the property. You want a, te- a property that's that's rentable. And yep. again, sometimes established homes that, that investors buy, first of all, they don't get as high a rent as new homes. They can have those periods where they become vacant because they might not be up to scratch. And around Australia, um, they've been increasing the requirements for um, air conditioning, for like quality of services and fittings that you're providing to a house. Yep. And again, picking up an older home, sometimes there's a retrofitting cost to bring that up to the standard required to, to be able to lease the property. Um, so again, an unsuspecting investor who jumps in, sees something they like when they walk around the block near their home, you go, I'm gonna buy that because it, it's nearby, I can walk past it every day. Don't judge a book by its cover, eh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it was, it, was, it was fascinating. Like we were, just, we were getting a brief just this morning from our property management team and they were um, you know, helping some of the people in our business understand the changes to legislation. Uh, won't go through all of that in, in, in this conversation, but safe to say, uh, one of the takeouts for me was it's never been as important as it is today in terms of getting your tenant selection right. 100%. And, uh, you know, to cut a long story short, basically once the tenant's in there, it's kind of like the Australian cricket team. Once you're in, hard to get out. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and, and as a result, you know, if you, if you don't have a, a property that's in high demand, you don't have a long list of the right demographic of the right kind of people to rent that property, um, you know, with one and a half or double incomes ideally to, to be able to support rent and rental growth over time. Uh, you know, that can be a real problem when it comes to your, uh, your cash flow. So um, that's probably a good lead into cash flow risk. So um, obviously vacancy is, is a key one. Um, what, are, what are the other kind of things that people would need to be aware of? Yeah, so obviously in terms of managing finance risk as well, like yeah. in terms of cash flow, if your interest rate isn't fixed, and, and I'm not suggesting or very, um, suggesting that everybody goes out and fixes their interest rate, but if it's not, you need to make sure that you've got enough buffer that you can satisfy a higher int- like servicing a higher interest rate. Yep. The banks are really good at this now. They assess on a 3% buffer. That might change in the future. It might drop to 2%. Um, but it's good to make sure that you're always managing your cash flow to those buffers. Now, the, the worst time, the, the most critical time is the first two years that you own a property. Um, so obviously anything that's gonna impact your cash flow in those first two years, uh, you need to be really mindful of. And uh, so making sure you've got those buffers um, and you can, yeah, you, you're confident of your job. And that's probably one of the, the key things as well. Um, probably not the best time to, to change jobs straight after you've bought a property <laughs> uh, and putting yourself in, in additional risk. So you kind of have to think through these things as well and make sure that you're comfortable with your, uh, with your earning capacity over the next, uh, next two years at least when you're buying a property. Everything that we've talked about so far today has kind of been around mitigating risk on a property. Um, 
at OpenCorp, we're advocates for and helping clients build portfolios over time. So um, what are some effective ways that as you build a portfolio, you can mitigate risk just by being kind of smart about what, where you buy and what you do? Yeah, well, look, I guess um, you touched on earlier about not just buying where you already live, mm. um, because that doesn't necessarily make it the best place to invest just because you already live there might be a great place to live. But you know, there's other metrics to, to judge an invest, investment by. But diversification is a really important one. And this is something we learned through trial and error. When I started investing, my brother started investing, and dad, we were really concentrated on the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, in particular, um, a, a small pocket of about four suburbs. And we were very active, which was great for about six years until the market stagnated. And it kind of shifted into an oversupply where things looked at kind of, we'd had a lot of growth, so we were, we were happy, but things weren't looking great for the next couple of years. Fortunately, I just relocated to Brisbane at that point in time, right. and I had the opportunity to see firsthand that there was a huge discrepancy in affordability between Melbourne and Brisbane. Brisbane was a lot more affordable, and there was an undersupply of houses, so it was absolutely right for house price growth for the next couple of years. So we started investing in Brisbane, and we caught that wave in Brisbane. So while the Melbourne properties were a little bit more stagnant, the Brisbane prices were going going up. And we caught the bug for diversification from that and it really opened our eyes to then start investing in other states. And that's obviously become something we now advocate to other investors. Um, so as I said, there's a benefit from more affordability sometimes by investing across borders, as well as more balance to your, to your renting um, increases and your house price growth as well, which becomes great. And it also starts to limit your exposure to legislative changes, because that is another risk we haven't really touched on, um, other than perhaps the impacts that you, you mentioned earlier about tenants um, and landlords' ability to, to get vacant possession of a house or to get possession orders to have a tenant move out if they're not yeah. a great tenant these days. So you need to be um, balancing these risks as much as you can. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I kind of share the sentiments. I. Um, you know, had never been to Perth uh, early 2000s when I started investing. A uh, mentor of mine suggested Perth. Um, I was converted from the outset because that property you know, nearly doubled in three and a half years, allowed me to then be able to take advantage of the next growth markets interstate in Brisbane. Um, so, you know, I've never kind of had that tie to invest, you know, where I know or because I'd seen the results early days. But I think, you know, intuitively people know that it makes sense not to put all of your eggs in one basket. Um, there are some smart ways to do it. You know, make sure you do your due diligence, buy the right kind of investment, have your buffers in place, protect against your cash flow. Um, but one risk that we haven't talked about today, which is probably the biggest risk of all of them when, you, when you're considering property investment, I think is not investing at all. You, know, you can look at all these different things as to reasons why not to do it. Um, have a think about what if you'd bought a property 15 or 20 years ago, what it would be worth today? Then take a second to think about, well, what if you didn't just have one, but if you had two or three or four and what that would have created for you financially. We've got untold number of examples of that. My favorite is Mark and Sue. Uh, Mark was kind of really motivated. Sue was super nervous. Uh, they sent me an email back in May, as you know, said that they'd retired. So uh, if Mark and Sue can do it, anyone can do it. Um, hope you found that valuable today in this episode of Chatting to Matt. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us.